Blog Talk Radio. Detectives Christopher Snow and Aaron McCoy, all available on Kindle, and the series is bundled together for $11.96. And I would also like to announce that some very press and Amazon are teaming up together to offer my first book, Dying for Vengeance, uh, for free um, on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday as well. So... Before we dive in today's Mil- into today's Milford House Mysteries podcast, Jody and I wanted to acknowledge the frightening times that all of us are living in right now. Um, you know, in many ways, those of us who love to read mysteries, suspense, horror, and even dystopian novels, we often use that fiction as a way to confront our fears at a safe distance. The bad stuff stays in the book or the movie when it ends. Not always, but usually there's a happy ending. And I know I'm having some trouble dealing with a reality that is as bad as, or let's make that worse than fiction, because it's all too real. And unfortunately, neither of us have any specific guidance on how to cope with this pandemic other than what the experts tell us. Stay at home, wash your hands, wear a mask if you need to go out to do essential service such as grocery shopping, or going to the pharmacy, stay hydrated, drink hot tea when you get home because the heat can kill the virus in your mouth. And I can tell you that I'm spending my time researching and writing my next book, reading, which is still my best escape tool, and spending time with my family. And I'm doing much the same. Um, I just finished rewrites on my next Alexa Williams book, um, although it'll be quite a while before it's published. Uh, And I'm getting a lot of reading in as well, plus Ben's watching TV series and movies. I know other people are listening to podcasts, so in that spirit, Jody and I thought we'd go ahead on schedule with today's Milford House Mysteries podcast. And today we're going to talk about settings and fiction. Now, for some books, setting is critical to the story. For others, not so much. When you read reviews, books that offer a distinct connection to the setting are often heralded as well-developed sense of place. We're going to explore some authors and books which fall into these categories when it comes to setting, those where sense of place is critical 
and those who are less important to the story. And then talk about our use of local setting, even offering authors some do's and don'ts if you're considering writing about a place that exists in real life. So let's start our discussion today at a broader level. Uh, a setting, uh, just uh, for a brief definition, but of course setting is the place where the book story happens. Um, some authors' entire body of work is closely identified with its setting, so much so that it's hard to imagine that that writer's novels um, would exist without also thinking about where the stories take place. The example, when I was, um, you know, thinking about what we were going to talk about here, um, the thing, the author that immediately leapt to my mind in this uh, particular category is William Faulkner, um, author of such classics as The Sound and the Fury, Absalom, Absalom. He based his fictional Yoknapathwa, <laughs> I even practiced this and I can't say it, Yoknapathwa County on Lafayette County, Mississippi. Faulkner's works are inextricably bound to this southern setting. Another example of an author who uses novels in the same setting as suspense author Louise Penny. Her series about Three Pines, a fictional, remote, and uncharted site, Canada, is immersed in snow and ice, drifting from the pines, dropping down the backs, and covering corpses for the main character, Armand Gamache, chief inspector of the Cirate de Quebec to Earth. The towering pines, they're centered you know, right in the middle of the community, surrounded by wilderness and freezing snow, are all equally beautiful yet a brutal milieu, one, one that's both comforting and menacing. In novels like those of Faulkner and Penny, the setting almost becomes a character um, in those books. Um, and I believe we can probably all name authors, both past and current, who fall into that category. Um, many suspense writers especially those who do series, <coughs> excuse me, um, often incorporate setting as a critical part of their books. For example, can you imagine Michael Connolly's Harry Bosch set in Des Moines, Iowa instead of Los Angeles? I really can't. Uh, or William Kent Kruger's On Again, Off Again Sheriff Cork O'Connor in a setting other than the rugged um, Iron Range of Minnesota with its Ojibwe Indian heritage. And there are a whole pantheon of suspense stories and series um, that use Florida as a, both a setting and a metaphor for crime and cor corruption. Um, some examples, I know we've talked about my favorite here in the podcast before, John D. McDonald, but James W. Hall, Carl Hyacin, Edna Buchanan, and many more. I'm not exactly sure what that says about Florida. Maybe it's just a nice place to live and write. <laughs> and setting can be critical in standalone books as well. Ernest Hemingway's classic, The Sun Also Rises, couldn't convey the same sense of post-World War I ennui or macho posturing as if it weren't set in the cafes of Paris and Pamplona, Spain during the, you know, the Bulls, which is kind of a metaphor for the book too. 
A book in which the setting actually becomes a character is Stephen King's The Shining. We all know that one. Jack, Wendy, and little Danny. If this small family hadn't been spending the winter alone in the isolated, supremely creepy Overlook Hotel in the middle of absolutely nowhere, King's story might have just been one more tale of a marriage gone bad in suburbia. Okay, maybe I'm exaggerating. But the whole old hotel in the wilderness provides a menacing backdrop all its own. Rather, it kind of reminds me of the movie Psycho, you know, with the same kind of menace, you know, to the building itself <laughs> or the house. And right. as certain, we can say, aspects of the hotel's history unfold. The setting helps propel the story forward. Agatha Christie also uses setting in a similar way. Her mysteries such as Murder on the Orient Express or Ten Little Indians, which is also known as And Then There Were None, which is my favorite, wouldn't have worked without the strictures imposed by the setting in both. If the people could have just left the train or the island, there would have been a lot less murder. And the modern author who uses a similar take, which I think she borrowed from Christie, of the closed house story is Ruth Ware. Yeah, I really liked her in a dark, dark wood. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, some authors write books in which setting is important to the book, but it doesn't permeate the story in quite as fundamental a way. Um, there, I, I think of Lee Child's Jack Reacher books. You know, sort of the whole point of Reacher is that he's a vagabond, that he has no roots. So each novel uh, involves him in a new situation, um, in a new place, uh, and introduces a new set of bad guys for him to vanquish. Childs always does a a very good job of placing Reacher credibly in his temporary setting, wherever he's passing through for that novel. Um, But, you know, the sex traffickers, he shuts down in the rural Midwest could probably just as easily have been in New England. Uh, for, for the Reacher books, the setting is less important than the story. And I'd say many spy novels are similar. Uh, not all, of course. I mean, we're talking generally in, in all of these things that we're, we're saying here today. But in spy novels, the good guys and the bad guys may travel through exotic settings all over the world. And each of those settings is uh, usually woven into the scene at hand. Um, and they're always very interesting to read about um, in, in a good author's book. But often that chase through the streets of Prague at midnight, yeah, it could have been a chase through the streets of Budapest and not made a whole lot of difference um, because it's the chase that's more important than where it happens the ticking clock that the hero or heroine has to beat before something terrible happens. That's more important than the setting in those type of books. You know, I'd use a similar example um, in uh, a movie setting, which are the Hallmark Channel's Christmas romances, for those of you who uh, watch those as a guilty or not-so-guilty pleasure. You know, does it really matter in those movies that the guy and girl meet in Christmasville, Iowa, or Snowflake, Maine? The the critical thing is that boy meets girl, doesn't girl doesn't like boy, 
girl gets to know boy better after some sort of mini-crisis, and they fall in love. And readers, in this case TV viewers, love the story no matter where it takes place. It's the romance that draws them in, not Christmasville or Snowflake. Uh, I'm actually more a fan of, like, The the Last Kingdom. But anyway, please understand, (laughs) there is no right or wrong way to approach setting whether it's a series or a standalone. Some authors like to invest heavily in certain settings for the book and stay with it. Look at my Carlisle crime cases. The setting takes chief place in the title because it has a small town atmosphere that lends itself well into my rural themes that's steeped in Carlisle's history. Others write different stories about different places or take their series hero or heroine on a physical journey like Ulysses. Or other jobs or mission require them in life to move on. So we're not making any value judgments here. We're just looking at, you know, the ones who focus more on setting. Authors can do whatever works well for them. That being said, now we're going to circle back uh, to the specific idea of using a local setting, one that actually exists in real life. If that's the path that you as an author decide to take, what are some of the aspects of that decision that you're going to need to consider? Uh, Some of you, perhaps all of you, um, already know that Jody and I live in the same area. Uh, And we both base our series here, as Jody said, in uh, Carlisle, Pennsylvania, which is a small town that really does exist in the south-central portion of the state. Even though we both write about Carlisle, however, we take slightly different paths. Um, My heroine, Alexa Williams, is a lawyer uh, who lives in a cabin outside Carlisle, and her adventures... um, mostly take place here in the area uh, and range locally from Harpers Ferry, West Virginia, to Harrisburg, to Northeast Pennsylvania. And some of the books have even taken Alexa uh, as far as away as East Africa and Italy for part of the stories. And my police procedurals are called the Carlisle Crime Case Series, so my protagonists investigate crimes, or basically murders, that take place within Carlisle and the Tri-County area. But like any real police investigation, the suspects and the clues don't always limit themselves to Carlisle. So my investigators often have to travel to neighboring communities and sometimes states, and even farther, to follow up the leads. For example, clues lead my detectives to Lancaster and to Harper's Ferry and from things strangled, chasing the suspect down the Susquehanna River. And in Darkness at First Light, Molly Petcher, whose real name was actually Mary Ludwig Hayes, once lived in and is buried in Carlisle. And she has a monument here, too. It's rather famous. She's featured in a subplot about Revolutionary War reenactors. Although it is a small town... Carlisle offers a lot of opportunities for murder and mayhem. Um, I mean story angles. Uh, We're only a half an hour away from the state capital, Harrisburg, uh, and a half an hour away in a different direction from the Civil War battlefield, the Gettysburg battlefield. We have a college here, a law school, 
the United States Army War College is located in Carlisle, which brings in military personnel not only from throughout the country, um, but from around the world. Uh, they go to school here. Um, and the area also has a rich history, um, especially from the Civil War. Uh, in addition, the surrounding area is a mix of very rural farms and forested lands including a segment of the Appalachian Trail. So we're small, but we have a lot of variety. And with all these factors to draw on, Carlisle makes an excellent small-town setting for a novel. But when an author looks at a real place, whether a small-town Carlisle or a huge city like New York, there are things to consider. First, do you call it by its real name or use a fictional name for your setting? Sherry and I both have gone with the real name. Faulkner went with his make-believe Yoknopotafel County. That oh, you said it right. A, yeah, that might suggest a fictional route since he's a literary <laughs> icon. <laughs> Sherry, would we would be yeah. literary icons if we had named Carlisle something else? No, oh, seriously, though. Yeah, I doubt it. (laughs) Creating a fictional name does give the author more leeway to be creative in designing your setting and not hewing as closely to all the names and places, but a local audience loves to read about places they know. Secondly, if you do stick with the real name, does that have to carry over into all the place names? Yes. And the Carlisle crime cases, using the actual streets, buildings, directions, restaurants, and the like, lend a small-town, close-knit, and unified community, which is both an advantage, because I know it, but also an advantage in that I'm originally from Cincinnati and well aware of this insider-outsider quality of small towns. But readers tell me they identify with my characters because they've been to many of the places I described. And the actual crimes at the core of my novels happen here. It lends realism to the stories. So this small town environment can at times be claustrophobic for my police squad for the very same reasons. I use a slightly similar, slightly different approach to place names. Um, For the most part, I I actually do use... um, the street names and, uh, you know, public places. Uh, But I change the name of places where bad things happen, Uh, especially if they're a business uh, like a restaurant or um, a public space for the most part. Um, Because I'm not sure, you know, a restaurant owner wants a fictional murder to happen in their, uh, on their premises. I will say that um, the changing the name part, uh, I have broken that rule when it comes to major, let's call them institutions. Um, For instance, in my novel, Dead of Spring, very bad things happen to a number of people in the state capitol building in Harrisburg. Um, And so, you know, the state capitol is such a major uh, public institution that I, I, I did not change that. Um, In my first book, um, I used a church that does exist, but gave it a fictional Underground Railroad history. And, you know, it's one of these things, lessons learned. I'm I'm not sure I would do that again in quite the same way, 
mainly because I've had so many local people ask me if the Underground Railroad part of that church was real. Um, and uh, it involves a, a cavern nearby uh, at the church. And I have had these visions in fact, I think somebody told me that they actually did comb the woods for that cave, uh, which I had basically invented out of whole cloth, but attached it to a real place. So I'm not sure I would do that again. Oh, you could have used the Dahman house in the basement. <laughs> yeah, that's Another true. issue that, yeah, yeah. Another issue that authors need to be more careful about when they're writing about a real place is character names. I try to avoid using names that might suggest I'm writing about a local prominent person or acquaintances. Even though my books are loosely based on actual cases, I fictionalize them so that the original case would be unrecognizable to most readers. But I avoid, also avoid any thinly veiled references to characters' real names um, for legal reasons. <laughs> but in other cases... I use the real names with their permission, like the mayor who married a couple in my book, because Carlisle's mayor at the time, he was a public figure and therefore part fabric and history of our town. Hmm. Well, um, I guess it's pretty much the same here, um, but maybe a little different once again. You know, we, we each have our own way of approaching it. Um, I actually, for the most part, never write about real people. Um, I, I know that a lot of authors, talk, uh, I've heard them say, oh, well, I had this person or that person in mind when I was writing this character. Uh, and I really don't do that. I, I, I might draw on my experience with people in different walks of life to create characters, um, but I never really have a specific real person in mind as I write. Um, it's more perhaps an amalgam or a, a sense of characteristics of, of different people. Um, the exception to that is uh, in the historical subplots of my novels. Uh, those subplots usually create a story about a purely fictional person. So my um, subplot protagonist, shall we say, uh, is a fictional, per fictional person that I've made up. Um, but that person uh, sometimes interacts with real historical figures. Uh, best example is in Dead of Winter, uh, where John Brown uh, and his group of raiders who attacked Harper's Ferry, West Virginia, um, they were real people before the Civil War. Um, that's when this happened. But the key people who, um, you know, who the plot is built around um, are fictional characters that I create. Well, I've written about historical characters, too, like Molly Pitcher. <clears throat> Actually, Mary Ludwig Hayes whom I mentioned earlier, <clears throat> excuse me, I do find that if you're writing about beloved historical figures and important to the local community, it's important that you get your facts straight. For example, in recreating the Battle of Maloth, where Mary Ludwig Hayes took her husband's place at the cannon when he fell injured and, and participated in the battle, I had to research that extensively so that it paralleled the actual events both you know, professional and 
amateur historians in, in this area specifically, but in, in any area, know a lot about the subject that you're tackling. And so that part has to be right. Um, along the same general line, if you're going to write about a real place, um, it, it helps to be really crystal clear about understanding the details, um, the climate, the seasons, the crops, the culture and subculture, for example. Um, now, it helps, of course, if you've lived in an area for most of your life, as I have, um, or at the very least visited uh, your setting extensively, as in my upcoming novel. But um, I found that even after a lifetime in, in south-central Pennsylvania, I needed to call on a farmer for advice uh, when I was trying to write uh, about how high the wheat would be in the field uh, at one particular scene in my uh, one of my novels. I think it was um, Dead of Spring. And, uh, you know, for the life of me, I didn't know, it, I knew that the wheat grows every year a couple of times <laughs> with the summer wheat and the winter wheat, but what would it, how high would it be in August? Ah, no clue. So a farmer was able to, able to help me. Uh, another example, the subcultures idea, this area in south central Pennsylvania has a number of Mennonite and Amish residents. Uh, I went to elementary school with, men, with many Mennonite kids and played in their houses when I was little. Um, but I always hesitate to include a Mennonite or Amish character in one of my novels because there's just so many nuances and subtle differentiations between the different sects that live around here. Um, I'm really afraid I'd get it wrong. And I know there's a whole line of books out there, um, mostly romances, I believe, that focus mm -hmm. on what we call plain people here. But I just can't imagine doing the necessary research to get it exactly right. I agree with you on that one. And I hope our experience in writing about a real setting has been useful. We didn't have time to talk about the very different challenges and decisions relating to setting when you write fantasy or science fiction or some other genre. But we want to emphasize, as we did with the way our authors approach setting, there's no right or wrong answer. What might work for one author might not feel right to another. One of the beauties of writing fiction is that individual creativity is the foundation for every book or short story. So we can raise issues for authors to consider. But here again, each author has to find his or her own path. We hope you enjoyed it. Hey, Jody, one program. more thing I just thought of mm -hmm. that let me insert huh? very briefly is that, okay. you know, I think one of the things about when you write local, too, um, is that an author shouldn't get, uh, what's the right word, so bogged down in uh, or so invested in that local setting that the, the, the novel that you're writing becomes interesting only to people in a certain area. Um, so, but, and we're, I know this wasn't the, the real focus for today, but you can still write about a local setting and take on universal themes and universal plots 
um, but they are they are grounded in a setting that either you're familiar with or that um, you know you invent in a in a different uh, some authors invent. But I think that's important to note. Oh yeah, I I agree because uh, especially in mysteries, you know, where the plot line and the characters and you know, but what happens and who do, who done it is is of paramount importance as well. Well, right, again, we right. hope we, you, our listeners enjoyed today's program. Our next podcast will be on April 30th at 2.30 p.m. when we'll interview a guest author. Please join us. And as a reminder to all you readers and listeners, our books are available at Sunbury Press's online bookstore, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and other online retailers and bookstores. And any independent bookstore owner can order it as well. And a special thanks to all of you for listening to the Milford House Mysteries. In the meantime, uh, you can follow us on social media. Um, I'm on the web at www.sherrynolton.com, plus Facebook and Twitter. And I'm on facebook.com slash Carlisle Crime Cases by Jan West. And my website is all lowercase, www.carlislecrimecases.com. And uh, as a reminder, if this is your first Milford House Mysteries podcast, um, all of them are available, all the ones we've ever done for the past couple of years, um, on the BookSpeak Network and can be downloaded to listen to at any time. So thanks for listening. Until next time, please stay home and stay well. Goodbye. See you next time.